What has the world come to? Officials in Switzerland, the sixth richest country in the world, are seriously considering load shedding as an option to weather a long, cold winter in the midst of the ongoing European energy crisis. And they're not alone. The United Kingdom and France are also touting calculated blackouts and Germany is proposing shorter showers and heat rationing. There is absolutely no doubt that Europe is spiralling into the world's worst energy crisis since the Arab oil embargoes of the 70s and the 80s. And to put the gravity of the situation into some perspective, Bloomberg reporting that on the 20th of July, the city of London paid a record high of £9,725 per megawatt hour to avoid a blackout. That is 5,000% higher than the typical price of around £178. So how did Europe get into this mess? Is there a way out of it? This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends, moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. A very warm welcome to you. My name is Jeremy Max. And today I'm joined by Philip Shaw, Chief Economist for Investec in the United Kingdom. He'll tell us more about what the crisis means for Europe. And Annabel Bishop, Chief Economist of Investec in South Africa, to discuss the knock-on impact of the power shortage on South Africa. Phil, let's uh, start with you and a very warm welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. I don't think I need to tell you this. Europe is facing a perfect storm with demand for natural gas far outweighing supply. Maybe a good point to start is how did it come to this? Yeah. Hi, everybody. This is really a situation which has been brought about by energy supply. And it's pretty complex for the number of factors kicking in in different places. But just to give you a few examples, there have been efforts to reduce fossil fuel generation for some time throughout Europe, obviously, on environmental grounds. Also, in Germany specifically, there's been a big drive to decommission nuclear power stations early following the Fukushima disaster in 2011. And I think there are only about three remaining in the entire country. Also, uh, there are have been issues with renewable energy supply as well. So in the UK last autumn, for example, we had unusually calm weather conditions and that resulted in less electricity from wind turbines. And what that did was it increased the demand for and therefore the price of gas. So if you look at electricity generation in the UK, typically we get 40% of our electricity from renewables and that's mainly wind, some solar and other sources as well. So actually, um, to use your phrase, a perfect storm would have, would have helped last year, but we didn't have one. So finally, I mean, if you look since Russia's invasion of the Ukraine in February, that's involved sanctions, Russia reducing the flow of gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. And essentially, the result is a scramble, particularly on continental Europe, to acquire and store gas, including LNG from a variety of sources to cope with winter demand. And that's really kept the price of energy, particularly gas, up. Well, let's talk about those prices if we can. Friday, I think it was, uh, consumers in Britain told they would have to pay in the region of £1,500 more for their energy bills in October. If uh, my maths is correct, that's around 30,000 rand against a backdrop full of dramatically increasing food and fuel prices. How is the UK government then addressing what's been called this cost of living crisis? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very serious situation here. Obviously, heavy demand for gas has resulted in the wholesale price of gas soaring. They're very volatile, but we've seen winter contracts as high as £9 a therm, and that's against the long-term average of 50p a therm. So it gives you an idea of the scale of wholesale gas increases. This is really important in the UK. I think you know not only does gas account for about 40% of electricity generation, but the winters in the UK get very cold. We need heating, and gas accounts for over 75% of heating fuel. So 
we saw a package introduced in May to cope with a, I think it was a 54% increase in home energy costs in April. The rise we heard about on Friday is 80%. We don't know how the government is going to respond because the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has, has resigned and we don't know what the response is going to be. That's being left to his successor uh, and we don't know who that's going to be until Monday next week. Now, it's likely to be Liz Truss, the current Foreign Secretary. Initially, she was very negative towards the idea of what she termed handouts to people, but that view does seem to be changing. The issue here is that it's very expensive. So simply for purposes of illustration, a rise of 80% on energy, if you were to bail everybody out completely, would cost £44 billion to offset. So the government's got to be very careful in what it does, whether it funds part of any bailout package from tax increases. And I think we also have to bear in mind that given the wholesale costs I've described earlier, we're probably looking at another double digit rise in January. So whatever the government does, it's going to be a very complex package to have any effect. It's got to be fairly wide ranging as well. And overarching all of this, of course, Philip, is the spectre of closure and shivering, I guess. Goldman Sachs estimating that a full shutdown of Russian gas supply to Europe would drive European energy prices up by around 65%. How real then is that threat of Vladimir Putin simply turning off the taps? What are you hearing? Well, I think what we've seen over the last nine months or so is it's very difficult to second guess what the Russians are going to do. And if if we were to see a complete cessation of gas flows from Russia, you'd see energy rationing, particularly in Germany. But another possibility is what we've seen so far, um, and that's the Russians cutting supplies by around 90%. So what that's resulted in is the price going up, say, by around tenfold on average. And if the Russians were to continue to do that over the winter, they would not go without foreign currency, they would actually get the same sorts of revenues and still exert a major economic squeeze on Europe. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's the Russian strategy. But as I said, they're very, very difficult to second guess. Let's turn our attention now to South Africa. We all felt the pinch of the energy crisis with record high petrol prices at the pump in June. Annabel Bishop, Chief Economist for Investec in South Africa. What then are the latest impacts that we're feeling on our shores and our currency because of this European energy crisis that Phil has been speaking about? Yes. Hi, Jeremy. Look, you know, it's been really difficult because we've seen such a dramatic run up in fuel prices this year. And of course, you know, that's really the biggest impact to answer your question. We really have seen petrol prices reach historic highs. And of course, that's pushed our inflation rate up substantially. In South Africa, we're luckier because our inflation rate has only gone to 7.8% from, you know, around about 5% at the start of this year. But it's largely been due to increased electricity prices to some extent, but mainly your petrol and diesel prices. And of course, as well, your higher food costs. And, you know, the bottom line really is that South Africa is a small open economy. It's very beholden to global forces. And of course, the RAND's weakness that's come through because of the risk of environment we're finding in the third quarter, but also in the second quarter, a lot of international forecasts for the global economy being revised down to a recession risk. It's actually caused quite a bit of risk aversion in financial markets. You've seen a sell-off of emerging market currencies. The RAND, of course, is one of those. And all of this has contributed to higher inflation in South Africa, although we are hoping we might be near the peak now. We will continue this conversation in just a moment. I would like to remind you, though, that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Please don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us.
Just like our counterparts in the United Kingdom, Annabelle, South Africans, I think it's fair to say, are also facing a real cost of living crisis, albeit that we've been in this situation for a lot longer. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel here? Do you see us experiencing any easing by the end of the year, possibly? Yes, you know, I think because we obviously have seen such a quick run up inflation, and of course, you know, obviously, as I said earlier, moving from about 5.7% to 7.8% by July, we think by September, we'll be back to about 7.4%. We saw 7.4% in June. And by the end of the year, coming to about 6.8%, so below the 7% mark, particularly, however, Jeremy, over 2023, we actually see inflation dropping down to 4.5%. So, of course, as we know, inflation is the change in prices on a year-on-year basis. And we obviously are finding ourselves currently experiencing a very rapid increases in prices on a year ago. That's also the cost of living index, so a very rapid increase in the cost of living. Next year, we think the cost of living will drop down to more average, more normal levels of about 4.5%. Of course, that's what the Reserve Bank seeks to achieve as well. And the pun here is intended. I'm wondering if there is any light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. Uh, A recent report, Annabelle, you said that the value of coal exports from South Africa in the first half of 2022, close to triple that of the first half of 2021. Most of that is going to Europe to try and plug this power gap that we're talking about today. So is this likely to continue in the foreseeable future? And if that's the case, what other commodity export opportunities are there for South Africa? in the middle of this crisis. Yes, yes, um, Jeremy. So I think it's definitely going to continue. You know, we've seen a switching away of South Africa coal exports, you know, from Asia to Europe, as you mentioned. That's because they've switched away from uh, Russia to other sources for coal. And then that's a consequence of the Russian-Ukraine war, which has obviously been persisting for quite a lot longer than people had expected when it started off in the first quarter. Really to have a look at South Africa itself, you know, we don't unfortunately um, export gas, but of course, Mozambique has the opportunity there. And if you have a look at the other fossil fuels, oil, unfortunately, we don't utilize our own oil. We have to import it. But you know, the the real point here, I think, Jeremy, is that given the very strong effects that we're seeing coming through from climate change, given the agreements, the climate change agreements globally, we actually have seen some hope for transitioning away from fossil fuels. Certainly for Europe, if you have a look at the EU, they're, they're talking about trying to become less fossil fuel dependent, trying to transition away from it throughout next year and the year after. Of course, that is, it will have a negative impact on South Africa's coal exports. Our coal exports are our biggest export. That's often followed by motor vehicle parts and accessories, of course, some metals and obviously food as well. But really coal has, you know, come to the fore this year. One of the grave concerns has been it's a bulk commodity export. We need a lot of railage to get it from the mines to the ports. And of course, you know, we've got huge problems with railway system in South Africa and of course the ports to some degree as well. A lot of theft, you know, people stealing metal on the lines for scrap metal where there's a huge thriving and largely illegal industry in South Africa, which has seen huge theft of infrastructure. It's negative effect to the ports, the electricity capacity, the rail system as well. South Africa urgently needs to bolster its um, railway system in order to get even more coal. So we've got huge coal mines that we can get out of the country to take advantage in this gap that we have before climate change obviously prevents as much usage of fossil fuels as we're having. And, you know, we're not unlikely to be able to transition to um, gas exports. So really, South Africa needs to try and bring in some laws to stop the illegal sale of scrap metal in South Africa, the ripping out of infrastructure, and of course, a lot of it then being processed through the system, a lot of it being exported, putting a ban on export of scrap material as well is absolutely vital for us. But it really comes down to having a strong, secure supply of electricity, but also of transport systems as well. And that includes your rail systems as well as your ports. 
So back to you, Phil. How do you then see the current crisis reshaping Europe's energy mix in the medium to long term? Well, I think that the medium term strategy is that energy security becomes absolutely critical. You have to look for more diversity of supply. You have to be able to secure your supply as well. In the short term, though, Realistically, what a lot of governments will focus on is extending the lives of their fossil fuel power stations. It may be possible over the next year or two for the United States to produce more and export more LNG. Remember, the United States is the net gas exporter. At the same time, of course, it's logical to to push even harder on renewables such as wind and solar. Another point is, and this is often forgotten, is it just does make so much sense to encourage more on the efficient use of energy as well. And in the context of the winters being cold in Europe, Grants for insulating homes makes a lot of sense to reduce energy consumptions. We'd note in the UK that those sorts of grants fell away about 10 years ago. And my view is it would be a very positive thing to see them being reintroduced. And it's not every day you get two chief economists on one podcast. I'm not sure what the collective noun is for chief economists and an abacus of economists, maybe. So I'm going to take the opportunity to ask both of you the same question. And I guess it's one that's on everybody's mind. Is a global recession inevitable in this current climate of record inflation and interest rates? Annabelle, where's your head? Look, I think that it's an enormous risk. I think that we probably could see a global recession. If that happens, then of course, South Africa will fall into recession as well. I'd say we at least have a 40 to 50% chance of that. It's, it's, it's not a very nice environment to look at. Why is this happening? Because not only do we have exceptionally high energy prices throughout the world, particularly in Europe, the UK, I mean, we're seeing a lot of industries, for example, in Europe looking to actually um, reduce uh, production. If you look at the large smelters, they're they obviously are extremely heavy users of electricity, so it negatively affects businesses. Also, of course, as well, we have the very high interest rate environment. We were talking earlier about financial markets. We we're talking about the very high inflation rates prevailing globally and domestically. Of course, obviously, the strong focus we've seen come through from the Federal Reserve again at Jackson Hole and its communications on Friday, also earlier in the week when it released its minutes to the July meeting, the extreme focus on inflation. And of course, that's echoed by central bankers around the world. They want to look look to force inflation down very substantially using a substantially higher interest rates. And that, of course, is only just kicking off the process in Europe, but the US are really well underway in South Africa. It's going to suppress economic growth even further. And of course, slowing the global economy risks us seeing recession. Of course, we've already seen the United States see two quarters of contraction in their GDP, that they have their own methodologies defining whether that's a recession or not. They're coming out very positive at the moment on the economic activity and saying they don't think they'll fall into recession. But I think the risk is high. Phil, what is your view? Certainly, given the UK's exposure to gas prices, a recession in our view is very, very likely in the UK. We also believe that it's forthcoming in continental Europe and the US. Now, whether that morphs into a global recession or not, largely depends what sort of definition you use for a global recession. There there is no standard definition, but our global GDP forecast for next year is 2%. Whether you say that's a recession or not is a matter of opinion, but it's recognising that that is a very slow rate of growth and much less than the global average of 3 to 3.5%. So difficult economic times globally, certainly. And finally, Annabelle, I referenced at the beginning of this podcast that there's a possibility of blackouts in the United Kingdom over the winter. So for people who haven't experienced uh, phrases like stage four and stage six, I'm wondering if there are any load shedding survival tips that you want to share with your colleague in London. 
Yes, it's a very <laughs> difficult situation. Look, I think, you know, the big thing about load shedding is you have to try and plan for it. And with, if you're able to get a large batteries, if you're able to obviously use solar power, which is more difficult in the UK, but um, if you're obviously even able to get a generator, again, probably quite difficult in the UK given their climate change concerns. Those are all factors which you can try and use. I think batteries are probably um, very good for businesses, for people who work at home, doing the evenings, doing media, all of that. You probably need a big battery system to keep your computer going, to try and keep at least one heater going. Of course, other tips as well. You know, you have to plan your days around the load shedding schedules, which often are stuck to very well. But of course, you do get unexpected intermittent power outages. And the thing that load shedding does, which a lot of people don't look at, is that it actually damages appliances as well. It even damages substations. It damages electricity stations. So of course, that then just leads to additional unexpected outages as well. What we do in South Africa is we do make greater use of open cycle gas turbines or diesel generators to try and smooth the load through the day and to try and reduce load shedding. It's very expensive though, but of course I've seen in the UK they've already had to pay a huge amount just to try and avoid it in July. I think the bottom line for load shedding is that it's something that's probably inevitable. You're going to have to make peace with it, but where you can try and mitigate the circumstances, you know, you, you just have to, even if that includes cooking ahead, preparing meals ahead, you know, boiling water, keeping it in thermos. It's all very difficult when you're in winter in the UK because it can become very much colder than in South Africa. It's just, just not a nice prospect. Mm. And Philip, we offer you that information with our absolute pleasure, free of charge, because when it comes to load shedding South Africa, I think it's got its green number in that respect. Philip Shaw, Annabel Bishop, thank you so much for joining me on this edition of No Ordinary Wednesday. Please join us again on the 14th of September as we continue to explore money trends shaping your world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.